This episode is brought to you by Loyola University Maryland's Master of Theological Studies. Offering an academically rigorous and rewarding education setting with small class sizes and renowned faculty. Learn more and apply at loyola.edu slash theology. Again, that's loyola.edu slash theology. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Ash, it's good to be with you <laughs> on this Ash Wednesday. <laughs> You're uh, happy, yeah, yeah, no, happy no. Lent. Yep. No, yeah, it's. I'm now considering it my feast day. I will... Which I don't know if that means I can overturn the the, the fasting, fasting requirement <laughs> uh, because it's your personal feast yeah. day. It's mm-hmm. your your own Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, Ashley Wednesday. Uh, yeah. I don't think so. No. I think that the universal fast yeah, uh, yeah. would trump that. Um, but we're we're here. It snuck up on me. Yep. Uh, I feel like it always does. You mm-hmm. uh, you do anything for Lent? Uh, so I had this idea. I realized since we work from home a couple times a week, there's um there's a daily mass I can go to before before work and still get back to my computer by 9 a.m. So I'm going to make an effort to go to at least one extra mass per week and then That's really – I really like that you did not make that – Every day. Every day. Yeah, that just is like a – Setting myself up for failure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> like once a, an extra mass a week is a really good Lenten mm-hmm. goal, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That, that and those sweets. So what about you? I am – Fasting with my men's group on uh, Ash Wednesday and Fridays during Lent, we do uh, like a liquids only until sun up yes. to sun. Yes, I'm aware because this t- becomes a trial for year. your colleagues as well. I feel like I've, I've gotten better <laughs> as I've aged. I've, like, I haven't Not complained about as it much. once today, which is nice. So that's good. Doing that, my wife and I are going to try to like learn about a new saint every day. Mm, I like that. Yeah. And then hoping to host like uh, some like... A di- like a dinner in our home once a week to try to like build community and relationship nice. and kind of, you know, um, I forget, I think Francis in his London message, you know, talked about being a time to both like get right with God, but also like it, we also get right with the community too mm-hmm. during this time. So that's my effort towards that. Nice. Well, blessed Ash Wednesday to you. And because it's Lent, we are not drinking for the next few weeks. Yes. If you're new to the show every year, we do observe a Lenten fast from the, uh, that's why this is often over drinks, the show, not mm-hmm. always over drinks. Yes. We do get a break, a dispensation for St. Patrick's that's Day. That's correct. That is coming so. up. <laughs> uh, and who are we talking to this week? So we are talking to Patrick St. Jean, uh, SJ, who's an assistant professor of psychology and a student therapist at Creighton University in Omaha. Yeah, and Patrick is the author of the new book, The Crucible of Racism, which looks at how the church can become, you know, anti-racist through an Ignatian lens and what Ignatius's spiritual exercises and and spirituality can can do to help us on that journey. Yeah, and I think obviously it's um a call to repentance, you know, the premise that anti-racism is not optional for the spiritual life. And and the theme of repentance is is pretty lenten themed. So we also get into some what does Ignatius say about Lent and, you know, coming back to God during this time? But before we get to that, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Uh, what, what are we talking about this week, Zach? Um, I, we're talking about what everyone's talking about. Um, we're seven days into Russia's invasion of Ukraine at the time of recording. We're recording this on Wednesday, March 2nd. Uh, and we know the stories everywhere. Um 
uh, and it's on the hearts and minds of a, a lot of people right now. Uh, and changing every single day. So we're not going to talk about, you know, events on the ground as much. Yeah, but we wanted to focus specifically on some of the religious dimensions that are at play in this war, specifically kind of honing in on what Pope Francis has done to push for peace in this conflict. Right. And what she's been doing since we a lot of people started paying attention you know, like the events of the past seven days have been so dramatic that I kind of like forgot about the fact that this has been building up since the end of 2021. Mm -hmm. And Pope Francis has been, you know, warning us and calling for prayers for peace. Um, way back on January 22nd, he declared January 26th a world day of prayer for peace. And then last week before the invasion, he designated Ash Wednesday to be a day of prayer and fasting for peace. Since the invasion, he has been Kind of intervening behind the scenes. Yeah. On January 25th, he made a pretty dramatic move of going to the Russian embassy and offering himself as a mediator, the Russian embassy to the Holy See in Rome, mm -hmm. which is kind of remarkable because he's the, he's the head of state, right? So he's supposed to be like the ambassador is supposed to go to him when they want yes, to Yes. This him. would be like Joe Biden going down to some random embassy in DuPont Circle in D.C. That, yeah, just, that doesn't happen. Doesn't they, happen. Summon, they summon the ambassadors. And Vatican officials say they know of no precedent for such a move in modern Vatican history. Yeah. And they spoke for... 40 minutes, right? So mm -hmm. that we don't really know what they said. Both sides kind of released some statement about what they talked about, but it seems like they had a real encounter there. And this is kind of a classic Pope Francis move to just, you know, go where people are instead of meeting, like telling everyone to come to him, right? Yeah. Like when he says dialogue, he, he means it and practices it. Yeah. <laughs> and like going to the going to someone and seeking mm -hmm. them out as opposed to sort of waiting for a meeting to happen. Uh, I was I, I was moved by that when I saw that. Um, and he's uh, speaking of other people he's reached out to. Um, he spoke with Ukrainian President Zelensky on February 26, um, expressing you know profound sorrow at the tragic events that are happening after the invasion started. And Zelensky said that they that Pope Francis said he's praying for peace in Ukraine and a ceasefire. Right. So he's done a lot, but one thing people have noticed throughout all this is that Pope Francis has not called out Putin or Russia by name, which is. He has called for peace. He's said you know, no to war, but he has not said Russia. Yeah, it's interesting because I think the a lot of the West is you pretty united, and mm -hmm. this is Putin's war. This is you know this is Russia being the aggressor, and specifically mm -hmm. this is Putin's idea too. Yeah, and Russia. notable because he's he hasn't shied away from calling out war in Syria or Yemen or other places. I think the Vatican typically tries to avoid naming like a single side or an aggressor, mm -hmm. even when it's obvious. But the reason for that is because he's trying to keep open a, a, a path to dialogue, right, it seems? Right. Yeah. No, uh, Putin is very internationally isolated at this point. And it really seems like uh, Pope Francis could be the only person with, you know, the moral stature and, you know, relationship with Putin, who he's met three times, to serve as, you know, someone who Putin would see as an honest broker in negotiations to to reach a ceasefire, which is, is Pope Francis's ultimate goal. Yeah. I mean, that's the hope. I mean, who knows? Um, it's It's so fascinating, right? Because the Vatican in some ways and the Pope in some ways is like the has the weakest hand, right? Yeah, you know, he doesn't. Well, I guess he has the Swiss guards, but he doesn't have an army that he's going to send somewhere. No, and there's not like real economic sanctions that yeah. he can employ. And so there's not a lot that he, he's coming simply as a man mm -hmm. for peace, right? And so in some ways, that's the weakest hand. But as you said, he might be one of the only people that, you know, Putin and Russia can assess as an honest broker. And yeah. so a true neutral party to help mediate some kind of peace. Right. And on top of that very delicate 
you know, uh, line to walk. There is his relationship with the Russian Orthodox Church, which um, in Russia, the, the the head of that church, uh, Patriarch Kirill, is is very close to Putin. Um, and in general, the church is more nationalistic. So anything Pope Francis says about Russia is going to, you know, be heard by the leaders of the Russian Orthodox Church as, as an attack on them. Yeah, it's it's. It's really messy. And it's not something I will pretend to have any expertise on, right? Because um, as you said, like the Eastern churches having their relationships to the nations is always something that's been pretty foreign to me, you know, being Roman Catholic. Um, but I know there's the Ukrainian Catholic Church. There's a newly recognized Orthodox Church of Ukraine and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, all with, you know, varying levels of relationship to Moscow. But one thing that's fascinating, uh, and our colleagues, you know, get into this a lot more on Inside the Vatican this week, is that all those churches, even though they kind of are, you know, divided in, in ecclesial terms sometimes, they're all pretty united against this invasion and because they're all under siege right now. And so there's there's a, a, a unity that's happening in pushing for peace and, and really standing against this war. Right. So, yeah, as we said, we're recording this on Ash Wednesday. It's a day of uh, prayer and fasting for peace, which we are doing. Um, so we're going to continue to keep the Ukrainian people in our prayers. And we're going to talk a bit more about the spiritual side of, you know, just witnessing this this conflict um, in As One Friend Speaks to Another. So stick around for that. Yes. And stick around for our conversation with Patrick St. John. us from Omaha, Nebraska is Patrick St. John. Patrick is a Jesuit regent and an assistant professor of psychology and a student therapist at Creighton University, and he's the author of The Crucible of Racism. Welcome to Jesuitical, Patrick. Thank you very much for having me here, Ashley. Inside. And really quick, could you just remind us what a Jesuit regent is? Because uh, I just, it sounds like you're a Jesuit king, kind of, <laughs> which I, but I know that's not quite the case. Oh, okay, you're very, very exact. You're very on the way, but you're not the king. <laughs> <laughs> um, a general region pretty much is, is a straightforward, is a step where after novitiate, when you entered, you the time for formations, you pray, you hang out with other people, eat, and then you see, okay, is this thing the good thing fit for me? You might really want to do that, or if they really want to do me. It's kind of like, First step of a dating. You're dating yeah. the Jesuits, okay. the society, right. and the bishop. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much, Zach. I didn't yeah. want to say that out loud. <laughs> All right. Well, Patrick. So you're 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 maybe I guess about halfway through your your Jesuit formation, and every Jesuit's kind of vocation story is is unique. But yours is really really fascinating. You you were born in Haiti, which I thought of as a pretty Catholic country, but you you did not grow up Catholic. You grew up Southern Baptist. So can you can you bring us back to your your time there? What what was your up bringing like and and how did you start getting introduced to to the catholic church and jesuit uh spirituality this is a very great question actually thank you very much for asking these because i was not born catholic means generation to generation in fact my my family from my mother's side introduced the southern baptist to haiti pretty much back in the 1876 and ever since generations after generation all of us has been like baptist preacher that's by default how we become into my family then when i my when my godfather died for the first time i entered in catholic church so your godfather was catholic 
no, he was Catholic. He was a good friend of okay. my father. Then that's how when he died, went to the funeral. I went to the Catholic church. I saw how the priest dressed and then went on his homily. He said, you know what? Everybody has a call here. God's called you. That's what it is. Somehow I feel it like I fell in love to the Catholic church. And so my, what, what my grandmother used to say, love at first sight to the divine. That's how. Then I said, oh, I think I want to be just like this guy. And I want to do God's kingdom. Go back home, say that to my parents. My mother, she's a Baptist preacher. She said, nope, don't waste your time. But my, my grandmother also was a Baptist preacher, but was more open to the conversations. She knew pretty much the Society of Jesus. She, in fact, when she was the consulate in Paris for the Haitian government, she met Father Pedro Aupe in the early age when Father Pedro Aupe used to go to Paris to give talks. That's pretty crazy. I mean, Pedro Aupe is like a, he was a big deal in the Jesuits back then, right? Like he's the top Jesuit and I'm sure maybe planted some seeds. I don't know, like at least gave your, your grandmother a, a fa- favorable impression of the Jesuits. She wanted me to go to a Jesuit high school and I went there. I still remember Father Mo Joseph was like this guy. He was very, very good friend of mine and it becomes showed me all about the Jesuit. But mainly, I would say, you know, it's the way after my grandmother introduced me and forced me to go to a Jesuit high school, I think Father Mo will really teach me some things that I've never felt before. Show me like this face of Christ. I was the only black boys in this school of like about like 1,100 boys. But he always come and the care, attention, the father figure he used to give me, whose dad was always out because my dad was a physician, always never being home. Father Mo would give me some things I've never had before. And I said, you know why? This is exactly what I want to be. So we definitely want to get more into that Jesuit journey. But I, I don't want to um, – you come from this such a rich line of Southern Baptists, having both your mom and your grandmother be being preachers and you know pretty high up there in the religious world. What was the difference between what you experienced in the Southern Baptist Church and maybe what were some of the gifts that you got there that you then carried on when you became a Catholic? I think the, my Baptist uh, – for bringing help me to blend the words of God with action. And that's when I discovered this language we use in the society, being a contemplative in actions. That's what Ignatius we like has us to. That's really what, to answer your question, Ashley, that's what really pretty much bring me with here, here where I am today. Now, you mentioned being the only black boy in a giant Jesuit high school. And so y- 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 to shift to your book a little bit, you're kind of being introduced to Ignatian spirituality around the same time you kind of write that you, you have this own like understanding of your own identity as a black person here in the United States. Can you talk about what that was like, sort of that kind of awakening or realization of what it was like to, to be here and and be sort of singled out like that? For the first time, Zach, I knew that I was a black man. It's when I come to the United States and when I enter in the Society of Jesus. I did not know that I was a black man. I've been like going all over the world, Spain, Brazil, Italy, and you name it, many other countries for study and anything I would travel. I, I didn't know that there, there was supposed to be something else behind my humanity. Yeah. So you mentioned you going to all these other countries and never, never feeling like you were being confronted with this idea of being a black man. When you came to the U.S., was it specific experiences that made that reality present to you? Was it just kind of the atmosphere and, you know, just the air that you were 
breathing here. What made that crucible so so deeply felt when you were in the United States? I think for me, mainly, I would say like it's the idol we have created. Means that as a way like we this notion of like otherness we have established as a way we become, and then somehow by default, we had to see the other as other in order for me to exist. I didn't know that was something. One of the very, very clear example, I still remember when I was in the novitiate, we have a ga- usually have a gathering, we invited people here. And then there is this, this benefactor, one of our benefactors who came and then with many other people. And then I was in the kitchen. I was cooking. I, was, I still remember I was doing like a, a Brazilian pate to give everybody and be very happy, then go out, hang out. And then she come, wow. I really, really like that. Where is your restaurant in the city? I said, what do you mean? Oh, yes, I'm talking to you. Where is your restaurant? I really would like to place an order because this is very, very good. I said, no, ma'am, I'm a novice. Hey, you're lying to me. You are a novice? I said, yes, ma'am, I'm a novice. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to go in and ask the novice master because I've never seen a black, black kids with you. Black, you're a novice. I want to jump forward to... Uh, 2020. So as uh, listeners of the show will know, that was the year uh, that George Floyd was murdered by a, a white police officer. And you you write in the book about your experience of that week. You had, you had been on retreat. Um, can you can you take us back there? So so you're on retreat. And then how do you learn of the news of, of George Floyd's death? I wasn't a retreat. In exactly. That's our, our, our yearly retreat. We do eight days. Then the news came and and you're not supposed to be watching the news though right like on the retreat you're kind of are you supposed to be kind of locked in or is it usually is it, you, we have this eight day silent retreat i was not supposed to watch mm-hmm. and i go back and sharing that with my spiritual director again it's the same old same old language oh patrick you know why that was one of those guys who did not respect the law and just had to pay for it you're not one of these guys you're, you're a spiritual director said to you in that moment that George Floyd I am, deserved I'm, it? I'm paraphrasing yeah. here. I'm paraphrasing here. I'm paraphrasing here. You're not one of these guys. I mean, everything's going to be fine with you. Okay. So he was trying to reassure you that don't worry. Don't worry, Patrick. You're you're one of the good ones. A police officer is not going to You're one of the good ones. Yes. And you know, yeah. that's what happened. Then things still, I still feel disturbed. I could not pray. I feel this deep sense of a spiritual dryness. We engage in all of those conversations, but when it's become to the reality, to concretely go deep down to work with people of Christ, we most of us sometimes have this have this pretext to go back. It's not you, you're fine, everything's gonna be okay. That was really disturbing to me. And I, I think I still carry this conversation in with me for the rest of my life. You talk about how hard it you know has been to have some like open and honest conversations you know that people often as you say like try to put up these walls and retreat back into into the ego or, or or whatever what do you think we need to do to to really go deeper and engage with you know the other and see them in all their humanity and so if someone brings something like that there's a way to be able to to you know have some literal compassion and and suffering with them whether it's the catholic church is is the society, the society is all, give me everything that I have. I have. I mean, the society is all I know. I, the society really, like, really embrace me as this son. They teach me, they work with me. I challenge the society. I challenge Catholic Church because of my love 
for the church because of my love for my society. I'm a Jesuit. And I will not trade that for anything in the world. I think what we have to engage here, it's just like notion of, you know what, we are the society of Jesus who've been called to accompany people of God, not to run away from them whenever they need us the most. I think we have to come to take this spiritual risk and human risk to allow ourselves to be human together. How can we have a common humanity and break these walls of otherness that has been created? One of a, a really poignant part in your book is when you're discussing whether you know you're gonna whether you should name names uh, when when you're talking about experiences of racism within the Jesuits, and you you compared it to kind of like the culture of silence around the sexual abuse crisis of like you know we we need to protect the reputation of the Jesuits, so I'm not gonna like point out these problematic experiences that I've had. And it, you know, it's, it's, that's a deeply like difficult thing for you to grapple with. So I'm wondering if, if you're not going to go down that road of, if it's not just going to be naming names, what are, what are the practices that you think are most important to challenging racism within the Catholic church today, whether you, for you personally or for, for, you know, white Catholics? Oh my God, Ashley, you really want to put me in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I'm not telling you to name names now. I know you're not going there. <laughs> I said, my, I said, my are going to listen to this. You're going to be in trouble here. <laughs> Father, don't quote me. You yeah. quote Ashley. <laughs> yeah, that was Ashley, not, yeah. not Patrick. <laughs> no, you know why? It's really, really a big issue here because the, one of the major sins, in fact, major strike about that is this culture of silence we have developed around like this notion of like when it's become to the conversation uncomfortable conversation about race it's really like all of this is because we want to protect the brain the good name because the moment i say that for example this this lady who confronted me who did not believe want to believe that i was a jesuit novice i had to be the chef i cannot say her name I cannot come to say, you know why, ma'am, please, we need to, let's have a conversation together. Because she's our benefactor. Yeah. I'm going to have to pay the consequences. Even today, there's certain things in the church, you know, oh, no, no, you have to protect the church. We understand that. But this is why many, many of our young people in the Catholic church right now, this is the, this is the issue they have with the church. This is still challenging, Ashley, to answer to your questions. But we have to come engage in this conversation with the gospel to see whether or not I want to stand up with the gospel or whether or not I want to stand up with my brain. We did not learn enough from the, from the, from the sexual abuse in the church. Perhaps it's what is happening, but we're still going on with the sense of like secrecy. Christ did not create us to save the church. We don't have to protect God. Christ can take care of his church. He just want us to be an extension and to go build a kingdom. It's not about the brand. It's not about the good name. It's about the gospel. I think now it's time finally to engage on this work of the gospel. I want to shift a little bit in our conversation. You know, this is a time of penance and and, and maybe sitting with our brokenness a little bit. I'm wondering how you in, in your in your uh, role. Uh, being on a college campus, you, you know, you teach courses, you, you're a student therapist, um, 
you're a minister. How do you talk to young people today about Lent? And what do you think? How are they responding? Young people wanted something deeper, stronger in the church. Young people want us to work with them. They are not running away from what the church is giving. In fact, they love the church. They want to be in the church. They just say, you know, I come give us a space. We want to be listened. We want to be heard. We want to be all feel that we are here. We are part of these institutions, part of this ministry. I think for me, Lent really, it's really like this opportunity mainly for conversions. It's a time of restoration and time to say, finally, those young people, they want to hear us. They want us to, they want us to work with them. What can we do? What can we offer it? What can I do better so that we can find a space to be themselves? I'm wondering if we can tie this back to the earlier part of our conversation about racism in the church. Um, in the book, you talk about racism as a systemic external reality, but also kind of like a, a disease of the heart. And and so just hearing you talk about conversion, I'm wondering if, if someone wanted this Lent to be a time where they could have a conversion to kind of open their heart and their, their mind to seeing um, kind of the uglier parts of the church's history and present with regards to racism. What are some, are some resources or some practices that you would uh, recommend for them? Oh, it's that very easy, actually. They're going to have to go buy both of my book. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> buy both books. Yes, and right. the, the, the other book, uh, just to let people know, is The Spiritual Work of Racial Justice, A Month of Meditations with Ignatius. <laughs> but, I'll make no, the plug for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thank you very, very much. Actually. I think really here, is it time to come with, have these conversations with you? I all, this is, for me, this late. I see God give me the grace to build up my spiritual character where I can be with you and in walking in the crowd and see all of us to see why is Christ here and you know, what is Christ asking of me? Maybe my penance for this Lent would be wake up every day, pray and ask these simple questions. Christ, who do you want me to be for my neighbors? That's a good that's a good place to end um, the question, Christ, who do you want me to be for our neighbor? And I've got one final question for you, Patrick. Um, thank I have, you. First I have of all, thank you for you. Uh, good. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and, and for the book. I know it's, it, it's a really brave book. Um, it, and I think it's really important for everyone in our church to grapple with the, these issues and, 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 really, you know, take some risks like you're talking about, like maybe, maybe this led to this idea of taking risks, being open to change, um, being open to conversion, being open to hope. Uh, and before we let you go though, uh, we have our last question for you, which is if you could canonize one person living or dead, Catholic or not fictional or real, who would it be? And why? James Baldwin. James Baldwin. All right. Tell us, tell us why. (laughs) I don't know. James Baldwin get some things into him that most of us we have not yet discovered. He was kind of like this prophet who decided, you know, he was an activist, but not an activist. If you remember the whole movement, he chose to not go, but just like to look at distance. I still remember this like this conversation with Lindsey Johnson when Lindsey Johnson like wasn't in, in, in down in South. He said, you know what? Hey James, you know, I'm paraphrasing here. If you keep working like that, maybe in about 30 or 40 years, you might become president of, a, of the United States. And James looked at him like, you know, Jimmy, I always could refer to him because all of his friends used to call him Jimmy. Jimmy said, oh, really, Mr. President, which president for which America? 
You think a black man can become a president, but which president for which America? And for me, each time I just, I wake up, I think James Baldwin is one of the guys who always amazed me, one of my model and idol. And I think I would, thanks God I'm not the Pope and I would not be the Pope. Otherwise I would canonize him. <laughs> Real quick, what, if, what book should someone start with for James Baldwin if they haven't read any of his work? You know, if you really want to have a very good reading of him, go and Giovanni's one. Giovanni's yeah. Room. And when our listeners pick up a copy of James Baldwin's book, they can get a copy of both of your books, Patrick. Again, to remind our listeners, the first is The Spiritual Work of Racial Justice, A Month of Meditations with Ignatius, and The Crucible of Racism. Patrick, thank you so much for coming on the show. No, thank you very, very much, Zach. Really appreciate that. I will see you very soon. All right. Amen. Thanks again, Patrick. Before I sleep, hear the crickets, see the moon. Side by side and through and through No limit to what we can do Oh, we know what we have, let's hold on tight Found what we're looking for in life Call us crazy, but things are finally right When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? Yeah, I wanted to take a minute to recognize and thank a number of new Patreon supporters that we've gotten in the last couple of weeks. Uh, so first of all, thank you so much to Amy Overby, Don Zazada, Justin Michael Reyes, Kevin Cooney, and Amanda Bowman. Uh, thank you guys so much. We, we we can't, again, we say this all the time. It's really true. We can't do the show without you. And so your, your support means a ton. And if you want to join them in getting access to everything that's on our Patreon feed, the bonus episodes, the posts, the conversations, uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash americamedia, where if you join at the $10 level, you're going to also get access to a digital subscription to America Media, which is coming with some extra benefits this Lent. That is correct. We are doing daily Lent reflections uh, for the, the 40 days of Lent. These are reflections written by people like Zach and I and our colleagues and regular contributors to America. They also include a fun little Q&A with whoever the author is about what they're giving up for Lent, whether they cheat on Sundays. I have, I have very <laughs> strong feelings about cheating on Sundays. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to know Zach's feelings <laughs> about cheating on Sundays. Spoiler alert, I'm very pro <laughs> cheating on Sundays. <laughs> yes. Uh, you can get his further thoughts on that through the Lent Reflections if you get a digital subscription or become a Patreon member at the $10 level at patreon.com slash Media. And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives. And this week we're going to talk about, you know, the struggle of figuring out how to what it really means to pray for peace in Ukraine, which, you know, we all are doing and 
want to do. Yeah, I um I was very pleased to see you write about this in mm-hmm. America. Uh, you had an article, I think, the day the war started, mm-hmm. um, called "Praying for Peace in Ukraine Even When It Feels Useless," and I thought this was tapping into something a lot of people were feeling. I've been I've been first of all just like stunned to see how much like. Uh, Prayer has just been in the water and people kind of talking about it and openly saying they're praying for it, especially because it's such a uh, the the scenes that were, you know, are coming across our feeds are really like horrifying. But as you mentioned, like sometimes it can feel a little bit like it's it's not like the the impulse to prayer is, you know, worthless, like it's not even doing anything. Yeah. Uh, What was that? What was how did you start to process that? Yeah, so I was just mindlessly scrolling through uh, Twitter last Wednesday night uh, when the news of Russia's invasion first broke. And so, of course, I like immediately get sucked in and then doom scrolling and trying to get the latest updates in the war. But I'm also seeing people starting to post their prayers for for the people of Ukraine. And I'm, you know, liking those. And then I'm just as I'm liking them, I'm like, what is this? What does this mean? Like, does liking a tweet count as a prayer? And so then I, you know, try to actually say a prayer, say a Hail Mary, but I'm still just like, this feels useless. As I, as even, I, even if it counts as a prayer, yeah, it, it feels like it's nothing's like, happening. Yeah. Um, so I just started like thinking about that and, you know, you know, having these questions weigh on me. Like, and, and what, and what would I, what am I praying for? Am I praying that God's going to like intervene and change the course of events? Am I praying because it softens my own heart and points me in the way of peace? And what does that mean? So I just like, yeah, felt. Started to spiral as you Started to, to spiral. <laughs> and then thankfully, uh, we, we happened to work with a, um, someone who wrote the book on prayer, uh, yeah. Father James Martin. <laughs> what, what, and what did you, what'd you get out of that conversation with, with, with Jim? Because I think, it, I think the, the problems you're describing are not uh, unique to you. Jim kind of just encouraged me to not, not see a lack of results, not feeling something as, as not a sign that, that God isn't listening, but, but that God's ways are mysterious and he is working in ways that I can't feel or see, which, you know, can not always be the most satisfying thing, but but it is, I guess, the true thing. And I also talked to I talked to our boss, Father Matt Malone, about this too. And he made the point like, you know, we, we can't have a controlled spe- experiment on this because there's never been a time in the history of the world that somewhere, somewhere in the world hasn't been praying. Like and so we don't know what would what the world would be like if our prayers weren't there. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and I think it's what's interesting now in our contemporary world is that we have much more like ready access to evidence that other people are praying to, right? People's social media posts, all, like in real time, we we hear news that the Pope is praying for peace much quicker than, you know, it would have arrived a thousand years ago, for example. And so what does what does that do to our collective conscience as, as a body of believers that we're, that we're all praying for peace? That, you know, on Ash Wednesday, the the Roman Catholic Church as a whole is being, in, you know, Pope Francis has invited everybody to do this, is, you know, collectively fasting and praying for, for the same thing. I think that's also new territory that like we haven't really been before. And so I'll say the thing I've been like struggling with is that I know, and Francis has reminded of this over and over again, as Jesus reminds us too, right? Like peace starts with peace in your own heart. And, and that is a, a challenging thing to hear, especially when the temptation is to be like, 
oh, it's this it's this other guy's war over here. It's, you know, all Putin's fault, which I think, you know, in the realm of man is true, right? Like it is one guy starting a war. But like in the in the cosmic sphere, right? I know that my the hardness of my own heart and my own impulse to violence does somehow contribute to this mess that we live in. And so the prayer for peace really is like a personal challenge that you know I've got to confront. Yeah, so I probably didn't do justice to the wisdom that Jim gave me in that article. But if you want to read that, you can. It's Praying for Peace in Ukraine, Even When It Feels Useless, at americamagazine.org. Um, and we will we will continue praying, and we, we hope you will join us in, in praying for Ukraine. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review if you're on Apple or Spotify. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Music